Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I have the pleasure today of introducing uh, Dayo Olopade, who has uh, just produced a book looking at the informal economy and uh, informal kinds of entrepreneurship in Africa in a, a new and more energizing way. She's an African-American journalist and an irrepressible Afro-optimist, which is something nice after many, many years of seeing all things informal as a threat to governance, a threat to state formation, to actually look at some of the dynamism, dynamism and energy going on in the informal economy. Uh, my name is Kate Mocker. Uh, I'm a lecturer here, or rather a, a, an associate professor at the um, uh, Department of International Development, and I've been working on the informal economy for many, many years with a focus on Africa. And I do share Dio's idea that the informal economy has a lot of potential and a lot of dynamism. Uh, Dio herself uh, is a graduate of Yale. She specialized in literature and African studies. So those of you who think that there's no future in these disciplines, think again. You can go on to do all kinds of exciting things. Uh, she started her writing career in the U.S., and has uh, covered politics in a range of uh, very prominent uh, media publications, The New Republic, The Daily Beast. She's written for The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York, New York Times, and a number of other uh, very well-known uh, magazines and newspapers. In 2010, with the benefit of a Bernard Schwantz Fellowship at the New American Foundation, she was given uh, a grant to go out and put her ideas together and to write this book that uh, she's going to be presenting to us today, The Bright Continent, Breaking Rules and Making Change in Modern Africa, which was released in March 2014. And, and so yesterday, here. <laughs> and here yesterday, yes. Um, so I will hand over to Dio, and let's hear about uh, The Bright Continent. Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for coming. Um, let's do logistics. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, that's important. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. Yesterday I had the opportunity to uh, attend an exhibit in Shoreditch uh, that focused on blacks in Britain um, pre-war. And there was a fabulous uh, series of portraits about the African choir, um, a troupe of singers who had been here in 1891 uh, touring the United Kingdom, which um, I guess cemented for me or reinforced the idea that there's been a long-running dialogue between Africa and the United Kingdom and the diaspora generally and Western countries. So I know that LSE forms a big part of that, and I'm grateful to be here to have the chance to address you guys along those vectors. Um, so I actually would quibble a little bit with the idea that I'm an unbridled Afro-optimist. Um, the book is called The Bright Continent, but it's, it's more like wordplay um, than sort of Pollyannish optimism. Um, I'm not a very sentimental person. I think this book is fairly irreverent and fun. Uh, I always say that this is a book about Africa with no animals, uh, if you can imagine. Um, I decided to cover people. Go figure. Um, but it's, it's real. It's a serious book that tries to report from the ground. I'm a reporter. Um, what I see and how ordinary people fit into the kinds of policies, politics, you might talk about at a place like LSE. So uh, I'll start my talk with a little bit of um, orientation. Um, so if you type the phrase, why is Africa, into a search engine, the internet will complete your sentence, I think, in a fairly heartbreaking way. Um, why is Africa so poor? 
Why is Africa so dangerous? Why is Africa, quote, such a mess? Um, technology, specifically Google, gives us a view into the collective consciousness of millions of web browsers who appear to share the centuries-long misapprehension that Africa remains a dark continent. Um, I should say that it's, it's rather difficult. Um, you know, my book, my book tries to revisit that narrative, and I think of it more than anything. It's a work of reporting, but it is also a work of narrative correction. The perceptions really are very damning, and I think they're incorrect. It is also, however, very difficult to talk about Africa, which is a population of about a billion people, most of whom I've never met. And so my role as a reporter is, is basically to say what I have seen. And that is, I think, the function of the book as a reported work, but also as an intervention in this complicated and I think inaccurate narrative of, um, that you can see on this Economist cover here. Now, um, you know, Africa, I think, just to orient ourselves a bit, I focus on sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm going I'm to rattle off some statistics so that we have a common vocabulary we can use to talk about the things that follow. Um, it is, as, as is often repeated to me, um, a site of exploding macroeconomic growth, right? Uh, that's a statistic I hear most about sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and it's not just that six out of ten of the world's fastest-growing economies are in Africa. It's that the continent rounds out the top 50 as well. Uh, and much more importantly, it is that only one-third of this growth is in the extractive sector that uh, powers the oil and that brings the oil that powers your car, the minerals and metals in your phone. Um, increasingly, construction and agriculture and services, I think serv- that third is, almost, is the most important, represent a, an ever-growing share of economic activity. Um, today, the continent... Sorry, I'm doing two computers, but I'll keep going on the slides. Um, uh, the continent has this, as you can see, it is the red line here. Aside from 2011, which represents something of an aberration, uh, it is outpacing the rest of the world in terms of its economic growth. Again, this is at a macroeconomic level with respect to GDP. Um, for an investor, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa offers a higher rate of return than the BRIC countries you've heard so much about. Um, The World Bank classifies now 22 countries in Africa as middle income, uh, which is to say off the lowest rung of economic achievement and climbing, um, though it does not represent or resemble the equivalent of the United Kingdom or the United States. uh, Africa now has a middle class, as defined by the African Development Bank, as 300 million people, um, making up to 10 times that ancient poverty benchmark of $2 a day. And this is something, this slide, I think, really, for me, as someone who is a member of the African diaspora, as a Nigerian-American, this slide really speaks volumes. Um, when it comes to financing Africa's future, it is not philanthropy or official development assistance that is doing this and making a difference. It is diaphora, diaspora Africans like myself that are sending $21.5 billion, with a B, dollars to the continent annually. It is... Somewhat inchoate, it is by definition decentralized, uh, but it is, in a sense, reinforcing the idea that capitalists, rather than donors, are financing the continent's future. Um, so on this continent, this is a photo I took in Babadogo in Kenya, a training for women who are um, learning ICT. On a continent approaching a billion people, we have 720 million who are uh, owners of mobile phones. Now, when I started writing my book, which is almost exactly four years ago, the figure was 400 million. Um, And I think 
I, I would love to know if my publisher got this right in print, um, but we had to continually keep revising the statistic upwards. If you look at the charts of cell phone adoption and connectivity, um, mobile web, etc., the, the graph looks like a hockey stick. It's very flat, and then it just zooms right up. Um, Beyond this, the type of people you see in this photograph represent the new sort of demographic dividend in sub-Saharan Africa, which is to say it's the youngest continent by far. Um, beyond its youth, compared to um, the OECD, you have a massive urbanization happening. I mentioned that a lot of the growth is in construction. Um, it's apparent to anyone who spent time in sub-Saharan Africa that the continent is very much under construction. Um, Aliko Dangote made his fortune with cement, uh, not for no reason. Um, so there are 50 African cities that have more than a million people. Um, and I think while we hear so much about the sort of complicated, crowded megacities like Lagos, Johannesburg, Nairobi, name a few others, um, it is these sort of second-tier cities uh, that are really a, a site of relevance for our exploration of what, what happens next in Africa. Um, if, if public health and education are your sort of bread and butter, um, know that we have um, never before had so much concentrated energy and effort and foreign assistance and philanthropy for these, uh, the biggest health crises in Africa. And that, too, is a site that I would call something improving. Um, so, in sum, life in modern Africa is certainly not perfect, um, but it's better than has been before. Um, so now that we're more or less on the same page about the sort of top-line growth and pro progress story in Africa... The real question for me is to go back to that first slide, like why doesn't Africa get any credit for this? It's very bizarre, like given all the things that I just rattled off, like why doesn't Africa get credit for all of these achievements in a relatively short period of time? Uh, I think there are, are grim headlines, of course, and we are familiar with many of them. Um, Ebola deaths and kidnappings and terrorism and so forth. But I want to talk about two deeper, um, more complicated phenomena that are to blame. The first is poverty porn. The second is formality bias. So, with respect to poverty porn, I'll do it. I'll do it quickly because I believe that you know. I assume that within this group there is uh, some consensus that this framework, um, which is from about you know 2006, uh, the red credit card, sort of Bono and so on and so forth, has faded from relevance. Um, and yet, because I am a journalist, because I believe in narratives, I know that they matter toward outcomes, and I think that there has been um, a really negative and damaging uh, preponderance of images that reflect a reality that looks like this, more than the reality that I have observed on the ground. This is a picture uh, of someone with no agency, someone who depends upon another person for their help. Um, and that's, you know, it's a commercial ploy, nonetheless. Um, but I'll say four years ago when I began writing this book, this slide was the one that really put a fire under me and kicked off the book project. This is not from American Express. This is from the United Nations. This is a winning poster for a competition they held to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Millennium Development Goals. They scanned the world far and wide. They said, give us your posters that we can use. Again, a marketing project. Um, and again, the same lack of agency obtains. We have dear world leaders. We are still waiting. The presumption being, of course, that from the waist up, this is the G8. You can tell because of Merkel. Um, I guess it's G7 now. Um, and from the waist down, it is kids without neither shoes nor heads, for that matter. So the agency, um, certainly, it's a very powerful image that really spoke to not just people who want to profit, like Tom's shoes, from the existence of poverty, but the people who are supposed to be in charge of development practice globally uh, maintain this, um, the same negative perception that I think does affect outcomes. 
Um, so I think even today, and I say this as a member of the news media and who's been a foreign correspondent all throughout Africa, we hear much more about Boko Haram than you know, the Nigerian entrepreneur that sold Hopstop to Apple for $1 billion. I think it's a problem. Um, so what's more relevant, I guess, from my perspective as someone who came into this story, as someone who grew up in the U.S., was that there was just this clearly jarring disconnect between the political coverage that focuses on the top of the poster and my own lived experience as someone who had, uh, was more involved with what happens on the bottom of this poster. And uh, this leads me to our second <laughs> disruptive and I think damaging reality, which is formality bias. Um, I, won't, I won't try for a too firm of a definition, but it is, I think, the, the habit of judging African societies on Western terms, if I had to narrow it to a, a clean definition there. Um, bodies like the United Nations, the World Bank, many national development agencies, and certainly the media, use GDP and formal metrics like democratic elections, primary school enrollment, um, maternal mortality, things that are um, quantifiable, and things that, in my assessment, really miss the fundaments of what's happening in many different African economies. Um, and I think what's frustrating is that GDP, which is you know, the kind of thing that people use as a, not just a way of comparing apples to apples across countries, but as a way of providing development assistance and praising some countries and uh, punishing others. It's a stick and carrot approach. Is that it's a vestige of the 1920s. It's a very recent invention, um, one that was uh, engineered at the end of the Great Depression, but doesn't um, necessarily capture what you see in this slide, which is retail, retail activity. Um, in, this is in Dar es Salaam. Um, that is uh, in cash, unregistered, not tax-paying, and thus fairly illegible to these kinds of top-line narratives with respect to GDP uh, and other macroeconomic indicators. And so what to do? When you see something at the bottom of that poster that doesn't conform to what you see at the top of the poster, um, my experience uh, is that the top tends to ignore the bottom or tends to believe that it needs to change that, to reform it, so that it can be, again, read by the folks at the top of the poster. Um, and I think uh, I spoke to Obiagele Zekwisili, who is the one-time education minister in Nigeria, who has since left government to work on private sector initiatives. Uh, she described a young man asking her why the region's growth had not reached him in the form of a job, right? He's like, I keep hearing about this GDP, but why, why don't I have a job? And she described it as the policymaker's nightmare, this like vast disconnect between the kind of cheerleading that comes from formal statistics and you had a vote, that's great, um, and, and life has lived. Um, and I think dollars per day, which is another statistic that I've, another, another metric that I've referenced today, um, doesn't actually capture what happens in the informal sector. For this worker, for someone in the agricultural sector, for someone who is doing petty trade, I mean, my very first trip to Nigeria was um, when I was 11 years old, and it was just a, a miracle to me that you could buy anything in traffic. Um, some of you may be familiar with this particular dynamic in many different countries. Um, but for someone who has a, a good day, their income might be you know, up over that $20 a day threshold. For someone who's in a lean time, or they have family members staying with them because they've been displaced for some reason or another, um, that, that dollars per day statistic doesn't capture what's actually happening. Um, and so it's not that these habits are easy, because I think development work is very difficult and aid workers are well-intentioned. It is that they are inappropriate. They are just inappropriate. Um, we expect states and governments to be as responsive as they are in, the, uh, in, the, in older democracies. Uh, we mistake informality for corruption. 
And I think this is one of the more damaging aspects of this. Informality, let me repeat, is not corruption. It is simply 70% of economic activity, people who have not found sufficient formal sector employment or an economy that can support the labor force that is, as we noted earlier, young, surviving past childhood, and eager for opportunities. So I think we perceive African economies uh, with this lens of formality bias as chaotic and backward and disorganized. Um, the work of my book and the hope the conversation will have is to try and recognize and understand these populations and these dynamics as opportunities to innovate um, and as differently organized. So, um, I love this. <laughs> this, is, um, this is a vertical garden that is responding to lack of large land holdings. Um, for many, many farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, it's two out of three households are touched by the agricultural sector. Um, their plot is less than an acre. And so this exact idea of trying to do much more with far less, I think really animates a lot of the stories in my book. Um, it tries to describe not a situation of perfection, but a situation of resilience, a situation of uh, dynamism, and attempts to do much more with far less. And um, the term that I coined for this um, in conversation with my father um, is konju, which is a Yoruba word that signifies this exact dynamic of sort of uh, a little bit hustle, a little bit perseverance, um, a lot of bit creativity, um, and defines, I think, the, the world that is uh, at the bottom of that poster we saw earlier, the one that is overlooked too often. So I'm going to share a couple of, st a couple of cases, because I, I really would love to have a conversation. I know that uh, our time is not unlimited today, um, that support this idea. Because I think, you know, this has been a sort of uh, fairly high-level conversation about, you know, what I think is happening in Africa, why I think the narrative is missed. But I think when the rubber meets the road, the same kind of problems that we might confront um, in traditional development practice, um, poor roads, inconsistent electricity, uh, bad public sector education, uh, very little access to finance, these are problems that uh, folks are deploying the kind of tools in the informal sector using Kanju to resolve. So I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Um, one of them I think you will have heard of, which is M-Pesa. And I'll, I bring it up only because the UK played a particular role in that, um, which is, you know, access to finance is, imagine not having a bank account. Um, imagine having the kind of peripatetic flows of cash that, um, that we were just discussing. Um, you would be transacting in a cash economy and you would not have the ability to save. And at the same time, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the hockey stick growth of mobile phones, uh, those two trends um, have aligned to create a situation which mobile financial services are widespread, first in Kenya and throughout sub-Saharan Africa. Incredibly innovative business models that try and give people the ability to send money over their phones and to save money. Um, you've heard that story. But I think what's most interesting about mobile financial services today is they are moving beyond the simple transact and store and more sophisticated financial products are becoming layered onto the M-Pesas of the continent. You're seeing micro-insurance. You are seeing um, uh, different lending schemes that look at not your credit score. You may not even have an address, which is a formal statistic that we always use, but how often you buy your time, which is a perfectly reasonable proxy for trying to understand whether you have the ability to repay a loan. Um, so mobile financial services broadly, I think, is uh, just a fascinating example of the way lean innovation can drive real development progress in an area that has troubled development economists for decades. 
Um, the second case, let's see if my slides are right. I want you to talk about transportation. Um, how many folks, just to pull the room, have spent some time in sub-Saharan Africa? Raise your hand. Okay, so um, it is not like taking the tube in London, I will tell you that. <laughs> Getting from point A to point B. It often, and it's incredible to me that you know, state-run transportation systems may exist. They probably don't reach into the periphery. Um, and so people have devised these completely ingenious methods for traveling from point A to point B. Hundreds of millions of people somehow get to work every day. They walk, they bike, they take boda boda, motorcycle taxis. There is a word in just about every African country for the 14-passenger van, which, as we know, it often carries like 25 passengers. Dampho, um, matatu, shapa shapa. It's, uh, it's a widespread reality. And this is... Uh, people often talk about these solutions as being micro, right? These are just a small thing that you just did. Transportation in Africa is a macro example of how the informal sector has devised a solution to a common problem that uh, keeps the economies of various regions going. Um, I'll leave it at that. You all seem to be free. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the next example I'll talk about is in the sphere of education. Uh, this is Bridge Academies. This is a school in Machakos, the former capital of Kenya. Um, this is a really good example of the way formality bias impedes progress. The way that the Millennium Development Goals attract education has been to look at enrollment in schools. Okay, but as you will be familiar, uh, enrollment does not necessarily guarantee education. And for students who drop out of school, the fact of this free schooling schemes um, makes no difference as to whether they are participating fully in the economy. And free schools has been the policy tool that has been matched with the MDG enrollment metric all throughout sub-Saharan Africa and the world. You've seen kids streaming into schools. Um, the fees, however, are, it's not always free. There are hidden fees with respect to tutoring, with respect to uniforms, with respect to food costs, so that uh, net parents are paying something for a, a poor quality product. Bridge International, which is, I think, um, a company poised to... Uh, educate literally 10 million or so children by 2030. Um, now educates about 65,000. And the way that they've been able to provide low-cost private schooling at scale uses a couple of the other tools. They use commercial realities because they charge parents enforcing a certain kind of accountability. And they monitor attendance for the teachers. So often, teachers who aren't being paid are sitting under the tree or trying to skim off extra money by tutoring kids after school. The incentives are not aligned for them to teach children. So by enforcing accountability via technology in a distributed, decentralized fashion, and via payments, which is something like $5 a semester per child, um, they are offering parents choice. They're offering parents an alternative to the public sector system um, that has bad metrics, bad incentives, um, and I don't think is adequate to uh, educate the young people of sub-Saharan Africa at the, in a globally competitive way. Um, so that's Bridge. Uh, this is Malawi, where I visited uh, Baobab Health, a, uh, a startup that has an interesting uh, trajectory in that it has become a part of the Malawi Ministry of Health's offerings. But it began with eBay, actually. Um, this is another great example of something my mother... Those of you who are Yoruba in the audience or Nigerian may recognize this proverb, one man's meat is another man's poison. So eBay 
after the dot-com bust in 2000, had these netbooks, little tiny screens that did not have keyboards that were used for who knows what. Uh, there was a fire sale on eBay for all of these, these net screens here. So um, a Canadian who had been spending time in Malawi bought 20 of them and brought them to the long way, where uh, a local team of hardware engineers rebuilt them from scratch to become the sort of touchscreen console you see here. And they did this not because it was fun, although I think um, it probably was. And all of the engineers that I've met um, in my travels in Africa are sort of self-taught and interested in um, problem solving well beyond what we might see in Silicon Valley. Um, but they did it because Malawi had an enormous HIV-AIDS crisis. Um, over the course of 19, from 1998 to 2008, 15% of the adult population was uh, uh, passed away and leaving hundreds of thousands of orphans. Um, and all of the health clinics and hospitals were flooded. They did not have the ability to process patients. And so patients would wait an hour to be registered, uh, half a day to be seen. And as you will perhaps know, any kind of uh, opportunity cost like that hits even hurt further, hits even harder when these are communities that are giving up a day of labor um, to treat themselves. So it was a really grave situation. Uh, Baobab Health Intervention has brought the check-in time uh, from about 25 minutes down to 57 seconds. It is used, it's usable by someone who is not familiar with computer hardware and software. Um, because it's a touch screen, it's something that's very elegant. It spits out a label um, that is put on a sort of health passport that the patient can bring back the next time and scan. Um, their mobile phone number, all sorts of uh, bio biometric information is gathered and captured using this device, um, such that if someone has missed a follow-up appointment, um, and this is particularly important for chronic non-communicable diseases, um, but also for things like tuberculosis. Maintenance and return visits are very important. It's important for mothers who are pregnant. Um, and so these folks can follow up with patients because they have this gathered all of the information in one place. So it's an incredibly lean innovation um, that solved a real problem. Two things that I love about this, one, that it was sort of cast-offs from the detritus of you know, the, the American tech bubble that kick-started this particular in, in innovation, um, and two, that this project has been brought into the Malawian Ministry of Health, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, because I think there's been this perception, I think, in my conversation with folks that when I talk about informality, which people find somewhat scary, and when I talk about uh, non-state actors intervening in the development equation, and when I denigrate organizations like the United Nations and other aid, uh, aid organizations, um, it is that this is a huge problem and this is threatening. But I think in the best case scenario, all of those institutions that I named are simply risk averse, and their incentives are not aligned with innovation. And so if someone like Baobab Health can provide proof of concept, okay, in a situation where even here, I'm sure your politicians um, do not always have uh, the ability, the bandwidth, and the time um, to sponsor and supervise such products, um, this is a really helpful, um, I think, complementary dynamic um, when it's done well. And so this is now in 44 health clinics all throughout Malawi, um, solving the initial problem, but also, again, serving uh, populations beyond the HIV-AIDS treatment sector to uh, maternal health, to tuberculosis, um, and to general uh, point-of-care uh, diagnostics. So um, those are just a couple of the, the cases that, that are mentioned in the book. Um, 
there are dozens more. Um, addressing, again, not um, a situation of perfection, but one of continuous improvement. Continuous improvement driven notably by non-state actors um, supporting people in the informal sector to solve keen and very relevant development challenges um, in a way that is sustainable and, and I hope in a way that can scale. Um, so that is the overall sort of synthesis uh, of, of what the Bright Continent is about. Um, and I, I just, you know, I think this book um, does provide what I had hoped in the initial onset uh, was narrative correction. But I think, I hope it also provides a template for people. I'm, I'm a reporter, I'm not a development economist. I am not someone who works in public health. I'm not a venture capitalist. Um, you know, I'm not a, a, an off-grid energy entrepreneur. Um, but I hope that just by describing you know, what is going on from a ground level in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, folks who are interested in this uh, may, able, may be able to adapt and at least learn about some of these ventures for their own purposes. Um, and, and even if you're just a curious bystander, I think you know, it's a very important conversation to be having. Um, and if you, uh, let me see if I have this slide again. Do I? No. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the Google typing in this thing, we'll go back and show it to you, because I think this is just really astonishing. Um, so when you type something into a search engine, hopefully it will not autocomplete with this. But in the future, it will, com- it will complete with, you know, why is Africa so exciting? So that is, that is the talk. I would welcome your questions. Uh, thank you all for being so patient and listening to Okay, do you want to take questions there or do you want to sit down? I would love to sit. Okay. All right, we'll take questions in groups of three, um, so you have a little bit of time to think before you answer. Um, any, any immediately pressing ones? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I've been doing quite a lot of research on the informal economy in North Africa and its links to the Arab uprisings. So this is a story where um, the infor- informality has been a kind of negative or has had negative impact on kind of social and economic outcomes in the region. So people can't access healthcare because they haven't got an official employment card. Mm-hmm. Um, they have very, very low incomes, lots of instability. They don't have their legal rights, so they're more, they're more frequently um, impacted by kind of um, uh, state, state violence or state intimidation, etc. And so I wondered whether there is... What, what, how much negative kind of aspects of the informal economy you came across and, and what are kind of, if, if you know, it's a general positive story you've given, what are the concerns you have about informality and the way in which, I mean, I'm guessing your solution isn't to formalise, which is what a lot of people would say, you know, you formalise the informal economy to, to, to um, correct it, which is your, your story, it's a positive thing. But there must be areas of concern within that, and I wondered what you're going to take on that. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, okay, let's see oh, if yes, there are any, any yes, others. Okay. okay, I'm going to uh, exploit my position and put in another question to give you uh, time to think of further questions. I'd like to ask a question about accountability. Um, much of your book actually is looking partly at the interesting initi- initiatives going on at the bottom of the pyramid in small-scale enterprise and in the the informal economy. But it's also about the ways in which large-scale capital is coming in to scale these things up. And my question is, 
how are these decisions taken as to what is being scaled up? Um, capital's incentive to scale something up is if they can make a profit from it. But what about things that don't offer a profit but are, are useful for people? And the second question connected to that is what happens in the next downturn? It was corporations that fled Africa during hard times. Now that there's an, an increase in GDP, they're, they're moving in and they're interested. But if there's another downturn, um, what mechanism of accountability is there to make sure that all of our, uh, the, the health and education systems that have been scaled up through corporate engagement don't uh, simply disappear? I think we have one more. Are we taking three? Or like okay, three. three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you made a comment about, maybe I misinterpreted the comment, you made a comment, yeah, you made a comment about the leadership and you said that because Africa is pretty young, you know, some of the states, I guess, at max, or maybe 50 years old, that it's maybe not as realistic of an expectation to expect the leaders to respond to certain things the same way they would in older states. But doesn't that, in a sense, um, maybe hold the leaders a little bit less responsible for some of the things that they're doing and the failure to respond to certain, um, certain issues I mean, I understand that obviously you can blame, you know, structural adjustment policies for a lot of leaders' inability to sort of deal with education and with health, but don't they sort of have a responsibility to sort of you know, do a lot more and engage with these issues than they are currently? Okay. Uh, these are all great questions. And challenging ones, I think, and, and, and ones that I've grappled with certainly throughout the course of working on the book um, and talking to folks about it since then. To the first question about informality and its downsides, um, I think uh, from a legal perspective, there is certainly, if you go to an informal cluster, um, when I had my bed made in Kenya, because um, I needed a bed and I needed to have it made to have one, uh, I went down to uh, Dagarani Corner, which is a place where it's a cluster economy, uh, like Detroit or Milan or whatever, Silicon Valley, where people uh, make furniture. And in these economies, um, there are no intellectual property rights, right? It's uh, the kind of space where someone is, there's a lot of like, people are sharing a bandsaw, they're sharing a delivery truck, they're sharing varnishing, whatever. Um, but no one has the ability to protect their creativity, right? Uh, and in, in a certain sense, this is um, sort of perfect incubator for what it would look like in a sort of patentless universe where people could just um, uh, invent. But that's a broader, that's, that's to template a broader issue, which is that people are not able necessarily to protect their legal rights when there is an informal system. I would actually say that the concern there lies with the framework rather than um, the people who are not adjusting themselves to that framework. And I think what's most frustrating about policymaking is it tends to assume an Africa that does not exist, right? The World Bank knows that 70% of the economy is informal and predicts that in 2030, 70% of the economy will be informal. And maybe this is my bias as a reporter, but when you hear that, is it, is it just, is, is the solution to try and insist that uh, the, formal, the informal sector should, should uh, over time change, or is it to develop new tools to support the informal sector in exactly the places like legal rights um, and finance where they are most vulnerable? And I think some of the most exciting work in access to finance actually tries to do what I mentioned briefly, tries to find other proxies 
than this very typical, very traditional lending model that has excluded so many millions of people for so long. And it might not be just airtime purchases. Um, it might be, um, you know, whether or not you've paid school fees. It might be, and I, I just, and even from a, and this is more in the access to finance space, which is, I think, the, the biggest issue for the informal sector and for SMEs generally. Um, it is cheaper to use these proxies and have XYZ default rate than it is to go and diligence all of the loans for more secure borrowers. Um, and I think in the former case, where you are extending credit to folks who may deploy it in ways that they that we don't even know about because they haven't had access to credit, um, has the better outcome. So if the outcome, if the goal is inclusion, then the tasks need to meet that goal and to meet people where they are. That's certainly my position. Um, I do hear that, there are vulner- that, that the informal sector is vulnerable, but I think the, the challenge is to create policies that uh, are informed by that rather than trying to ex- extinguish it, because I don't think that that's realistic. Um, so the question about accountability, um, you know, I think what's, what's fascinating about the most recent downturn is that you know, African, African economies were mostly excluded um, from the sort of Western financial crisis because people had not been investing. Um, and so that actually ended up being, you saw that slide about GDP growth. Uh, uh, like it's, it's a, it was about not participating in this vulnerable to shocks sort of global macroeconomy. And I think your point is very well taken, if I'm hearing it, which is that now that there is increased interest in an investment in Africa and, and increased FDI, as you saw on that other slide, um, how will the risk-taking and sort of casino atmosphere in Western financial markets affect uh, African markets? Um, And the answer is, I don't know. Um, But I think when it comes to just financing broadly, um, and I didn't hear anything about government accountability there. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, I just, I think the risk risk factors, I think, are overblown. Um, The World Bank runs something called the MIGA, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Authority, and they've run it since the 1980s. And it was designed sort of, you know, for Latin American countries and Eastern European countries after the fall of the Berlin Wall in case of expropriation or some other kind of political risk. And since then, you know, the MIGA's only paid out about 20 times and only twice in Africa. So I think for the investor class, this idea that there is too much risk is, if it's overblown, uh, it's certainly dissipating. Um, and I guess I don't know if that actually answers your question what? not quite I'm actually more concerned about the risk to po- African populations mm-hmm. rather than to investors mm-hmm. investors have a lot of money to deal with risk mm-hmm. but governments have mechanisms of accountability mm-hmm. they may not be very well used but your example of Rwanda shows that um, you believe the governments actually can be uh, find ways to be more accountable Corporations have no mechanisms of accountability to local populations. So in what way will local populations be able to hold these uh, corporate uh, sources of finance and upscaling to account when these systems that are are, uh, funded by and uh, partly controlled by corporations um, cease to serve their interests or fail to serve their interests? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's complicated, I think, as is a question for workers pretty much anywhere, right? Um, if I'm giving you my bald and honest answer, I think um, 
I think the trade-off is one that I, I, feel, I feel much more comfortable with. Um, it sounds like than you do. But in a situation in which you have uh, youth unemployment at skyrocketing levels, and the, since the International Labor Organization began taking these statistics, and I think is probably the chief concern um, of both policymakers and ordinary people, um, to invite capital to employ young people in Africa um, is to try and address that problem in a way that is capitalistic. Um, there are, of course, the risks that you point out. Um, and I think when people speak about Chinese investment in Africa, it is so often um, reduced to this question of labor. When, when people who are frustrated with the way that China has deployed capital in Africa, it is always about the fact that they've had 70% of the employment in XYZ mining project or multi-million dollar road project um, that is Chinese rather than uh, from the country in which they are working. And that is something, because these are bilateral arrangements between Chinese tier run businesses and governments, where the governments at the time of contract bear some responsibility to enforce the employment agenda, which should be the underpinning of these kinds of deals. Um, and if they do not, then that is an issue, and it's something that people are very loud and agitated about. Um, but when it comes to companies uh, which to be clear, are not necessarily you know, owned by foreigners, but so many sort of local African companies are providing goods and services. It's the lowest possible hanging fruit. You know? um, there is an aluminum can factory in Nigeria that employs 2,000 people in Agbara. Um, I don't know if you've been there. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, when you consider that all the other cans come from South Africa and are made of steel, this is uh, an enormous opportunity to provide a manufacturing base. So maybe when we talk about accountability, we're really talking about sustainability. And so if the production is in the kinds of goods and services that do not produce an economy that can support people, I would have more of an issue with it. But if it is about industrialization, um, construction, agri, I think those kinds of investments are essential, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't shy away from them, even though they're inherent risks. Um, the third question... Um, was about leadership, and I guess it is about accountability in some way, again. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about legitimacy and the distance between an ordinary person and their government. And in sub-Saharan Africa, 73% of households do not speak the language of the state at home. Um, in other developing countries, it's 23%. And so I think that's a nice way of illuminating this great distance between people and their governments, where um, it is not just that the state may itself be irrelevant, and I say irrelevant even though I really want to say illegitimate, it is that the state is also incompetent. And so this frustrating double whammy of where the state you have been bequeathed, which is not that relevant to you, also does not provide services to you. Um, and being in that situation, I think, you know, it's quite difficult to find, to expect, to have the expectation that something will change. And when you look at the informal sector, just the taxation, let's take taxation as an issue. Um, why, why is it that you would pay tax, right? Um, it's a chicken and egg, right? You pay tax when you get something that you, you feel that you have benefited from, and when you benefit from that, you feel like you want to invest in the state, and in a society like the United Kingdom, you've well passed the sort of valley of death for that particular conversation, and so people pay tax here. 
Um, in a situation where your state is incompetent and potentially illegitimate, um, that kind of covenant between the citizen and the state is totally bankrupt. And so that's a conversation that I think is not unique to Africa, but is so pronounced. And so that is why I think, you know, I have this conversation about um, what I call fail states. Um, accountability within that context is, is very difficult, right? Often, too often it ends up being about elections, like having a vote every four years. Um, Cameroon had an election in 2011. Um, it was the first free and fair election that Cameroon has had in, since its independence, and it returned to power Paul Bia, who has been in power since 1982. So for all of the, I mean, you could check all the boxes, free and fair, open to observers, so on and so forth, but, but did, you get a, did you get change? Did you get an outcome? Um, Coyote Fayemi, who maybe some of you are familiar with his story, he's a governor in Ekiti State, where my family is from in Nigeria. An incredible guy, dynamic reformer. He's in the book. I profiled him as someone who's trying to make change. This person um, rattled with the social safety net. He uh, tried to introduce more accountability for teachers in the schools in Ekiti State. And um, he was kicked out of office not three months ago by a much more populist retail-level politician um, who uh, is not at all interested in these kinds of reforms that you and I might agree are objectively valuable for the population. So on the terms of political engagement, um, which I think you and I might both hope are going to have relevance in Africa, uh, I don't see a lot of possibility. And for the very youngest, smartest people in Nigeria or elsewhere, the idea of working in the public sector is unattractive. And I think that's one of the more galling realities, is that the folks that we need to take over from this earlier generation of less competent, um, less custodial politicians is not interested in that. Um, and I don't have a good answer for how to solve that riddle, but um, just on its own, I think politics and governance um, are not really adequate, and waiting for that is to hold people hostage. Okay, we can have a second round. Okay, I have seen one here, two, three, and we'll get you in the next round. Okay, and another here. I'll make my answer shorter. We'll go for the next the one here. So I've seen one, two, three. There's a, a gentleman back there, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Dio, for this, uh, uh, this lecture. I really enjoy it. My question is uh, this name of dark continent, which was given to the country several years ago. Do you still share the same opinion with those people who give the name in those days? Even looking at the map, mm. we still have a lot of colors, chocolate, blue, black, <laughs> white. Do you still say the country is dark? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if I have this slide up. Oh, it's not on the slideshow, but it's on my computer. It's, um, so this, this, this image... The economist has apologized for this formally and has, uh, I think, two years And ago? again, you refer to yeah. the politicians and um, corruption. What is your advice as to how this thing can be removed? Because it's very, there is no doubt about it. It is very common. Please, can you throw a little bit of light? Thank you very much. My name is Oloron Tui. There are two here. If you can put up your hand so the microphone can find you. Uh, thank you for your lecture. Um, I'm so glad you brought the manufacturing issue uh, in Africa. And do you see, with, with all the influx of investment from Asian countries, particularly one uh, in Africa, where it appears that the, the people 
they get the benefits from what's being built there, the transportation, the infrastructure, but that is being brought in from elsewhere, not being built there, mm-hmm. employing local people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it appears that it's, it's, it's kind of a rule uh, in Africa. Would you see there is a, a success case where the country or a particular country has negotiated, a, let's say, a better deal to really benefit the people with the job creation and if there is one, uh, why other countries are not following uh, the same path? Um, and if there is none, what, can, what is your suggestion as far as fixing the situation where all that investment really creates jobs for uh, the actual people that live in those countries? Okay. Can we do two at a time? I'm okay. Like, Okay, so I want to answer the first question, which is what, what, what the perception is now. Um, it's getting better. You know, I said, like, this statistic about six out of the ten fastest-growing economies in the world, which I just hate. Like, it's whatever. Like, I hear it all the time. Someone came up to me and asked me if I had heard that. I said, did you, did you know, young woman, that six out of the ten fastest-growing economies in the world are in Africa? And I was like, I did know that. But the point was that this person, it was, like, part of their, like, dinner party consensus, right? Which I think is a, a victory, even if it's, as we've discussed, like, not really nuanced enough to really talk about Africa. So I do think it's changing. Um, I'm not convinced entirely that um, that the work is done. You know, I mean, right now we just UN Week just finished in New York, where I live, and um, you know, you have all the global leaders come together and they're working on the Sustainable Development Goals, the next round, and it's still based on this like consensus, the best that 192 countries can agree to, which itself is going to be limiting. In the MDGs, the initial MDGs, there was no mention of agriculture. There was no mention of climate change because they were drafted in 2000 and because they hadn't thought of it, we've spent the last 15 years not incentivizing governments to address it. So when you launch a thousand ships, you would better have a very good blueprint. And so this is my suspicion for these centralized plans, even if people are starting to have a more nuanced view of human development. We don't use dollars a day anymore. Now we use you know, the, the multivariate human development index, where you want to know what the floor is made of and you know, how many people in your household and uh, what, what meals you've had recently. So it's, it's getting there, but... It is not yet something I feel like where we can declare victory. Um, on the corruption front, I do feel that I did not address the media sufficiently in this book. And I, I think that there's been this presumption that I mistakenly have shared, I confess, that the media is not part of development. Like Development is like sanitation and health and education and energy. Um, but of course, it is access to knowledge. And of course, that's a mechanism for accountability and sunlight destroys corruption. Um, and I don't think, and I've reported in you know, 15 different countries, sometimes along with seasoned reporters in those contexts, and I don't see what I saw in Washington, which is um, this presumption that as a member of the fourth estate, you have the right to know and you will distribute it. And while we have tools for access to knowledge in Africa, we do not necessarily have the, the flow of information to, to populate them that I would wish for. Um, and, and I think that the media are the only people these guys are worried about when you talk about corruption. They're not, they're not worried about a quadrennial vote, that's for sure. Um, so that's my brief answer to your question. The employment and manufacturing-based question is, is a really, really good one and really important, right? Because you, you know, companies that invest in um, fixed costs are investing, in, are investing for real. Companies that are just there for like, um, you know, 
things that are service-based or things that are technology-based are not necessarily, they could just as easily pick up and go somewhere else. So when you're, you're building factories, when you're building you know, infrastructure, um, that really signals an engagement with an economy and the ability to, to move young people, especially um, into formal sector employment or more steady, reliable income. So you asked about models that I think have worked. Um, one of them is in the book. Uh, QCIL is a pharmaceutical manufacturer in Uganda. And I love this because it's, of course, you know, the United Kingdom, DFID, will give money to the government of Uganda to procure drugs that are made in India, right? Like, that's follow the bouncing ball, right? And QCIL is WHO certified, one of only three plants on the continent, to produce the anti-malarials, the antiretrovirals, the kinds of... Um, like high-volume, high-margin pharmaceuticals that are being used by the Yuan population. And, um, you know, they've got, I think, a couple of hundred, maybe 600 employees, but they are doing it in Africa. And I think that's a very good example of um, highly skilled and technical manufacturing that is going on. Um, the aluminum can factory that I mentioned, that wasn't like any particular, you know, Genius that came up with the idea, it was based on a model in Brazil. And the reason I bring it up here is because I think these kinds of... And again, the, the Ugandan plant was, um, was created with help from CIPLA, an Indian pharmaceutical company. So India, Brazil, I won't even really put China. China is part of this story as well. This is a, a narrative of South-South engagement where the appetite for risk is higher because the understanding is that you're a developing country, like we can do this, it's possible, we've seen it, and we have the skills and the technology transfer to enable a manufacturing base to be uh, to take root. So I think that's a much more promising um, avenue than waiting for a General Electric to set up a factory. Um, and there was a Volkswagen factory in my parents' hometown when they were growing up in the 70s, and it has since shuttered. So it's not impossible, um, but it takes, it takes technology transfer and some effort. Okay, um, we had uh, somebody over here. Okay, it was not initially you, but okay. One, and there was somebody over here, this young lady here. Um, yes. I was actually part of the third group. Sorry? You were supposed to be. I was actually supposed to be in the last All right, you can be the third. All right, let's just take three because time is running, yeah. so it's, those three can get there. Okay, yeah. Um, I wanted to have your on-ground observation about a dilemma that, um, or at least a, an internal struggle in the mind of an art curator I was speaking to in Johannesburg, uh, literally a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. um, who is in charge of an art museum that holds both 19th century and onwards works that were originally held by the huge corporates of, of that early period, and also contemporary work. His struggle was with the um, low level of priority, very understandably, that um, heritage has had in education um, because of meeting more immediate needs. And it was how to retell the narrative. And that's what I wanted to pick up in what you were saying, which is much about the narrative is changing, the narrative is misrepresented and so on. And he wanted to place heritage in there, but mm -hmm. without looking back, but looking forward. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in your on-the-ground observation um, as to how you felt that affected questions of, for example, leadership, participation yeah. or non-participation in the sort of economic mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing mm -hmm. sector that you were talking about 
a minute ago. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a vision of self, self-image, mm-hmm. and I'd love to have your reporter's observations yeah, yeah. as to how you see that. Okay. okay, if you can keep your comments fairly succinct, because there are literally three minutes left. Um, Hi, thanks very much. Um, I'm not from an international development background and I haven't spent a lot of time in Africa, so I apologise if my question is a bit naive. But um, a lot of people talk about gender inequality being one of the um, factors that underpins economic development. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, the manifestation of gender inequalities in the development, in the informal economy, um, and also what, in your personal opinion, would be if, if, you, if you had a blank slate to try and redress gender inequalities, what thing would you do to try and make the biggest dent possible in the most amount of people as possible? Okay, and one final person over here. Okay, first of all, I'd like to address that woman's question over there. Um, I, ca- I can't see you. Um, in okay. Somalia... Best you make okay, your okay, question. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a question. I'm going to answer the question as well. Um, basically, <laughs> I think that will help gender inequality in Africa most is basically um, midwives, basically, because there's a lot of like child mortality and that. Yeah, that's like a quick like, answer. Um, <laughs> so my question to you is that everybody's been talking about corruption in Africa, African leaders. Do. I personally don't think the problem is with... Africa, people should, uh, corruption is everywhere. Corruption is in this country, but it's just indirect. They just do it through companies and they give it to the wife instead of the person that they're trying to. But anyway, my question is basically in terms of Africa and so forth, we've got corrupt leaders and we all know that they're corrupt. But why doesn't the West stop trading with Africa? Because Africa, when we did have the so called good leaders like Thomas Sankara and Lumumba and all of these people, I don't know. But I think they were killed, they were assassinated for a certain reason because they were actually wanted good for the country. They don't want, I don't believe, in my opinion, the West wants good governments because if you have good governance, then the natural resources of Africa, oil in Nigeria, um, what do you call it? What do you call it? Um, leather in Ethiopia will be developed in Africa. So. My question to you is why doesn't the West stop trading with Africa so Africans start standing on its own leg rather than them always doing indirect through Black World Health Organization and so forth? Hmm? Yeah, why didn't they stop trading with them in yeah. every way? Okay, you have the unenviable task of answering those three questions in okay. one minute. I've also been in these audiences and have not had my question answered, so please feel free to come up to me afterwards. Um, Okay, so the heritage issue. I mean, African culture is the original culture. I think I mentioned at the beginning of my talk that I was at this event where I saw some portraiture of blacks in Britain, and I thought, you know, it was a a really remarkable testament to this um, exchange. You will really love the chapter in my book, Chapter 9, because it deals with this issue of African studies and what effect it has on young people as leaders and as participants in the civil society. Um, To know that there are kingdoms that are ancient and that long traditions of art and history is actually significant. And so it's seen as something that is pedagogically irrelevant, but I think it's central. And so maybe if you have a chance to explore that, they're doing this in Johannesburg at the African Leadership Academy and potentially in many other places. 
the um, the gender question that is so complicated. Um, you know, women in Africa are, depending on the society you're in, either at the center or the periphery of the, the household. Um, and so it's not easy to give a general answer. Um, obviously, women's empowerment, I think, is very relevant, but I would put that in the same category as all vulnerable people, which is particularly young people. And young people in Africa are in the situation known as waithood, where they're kind of waiting for their lives to begin because their economies are not robust enough to provide them opportunities to join it. Um, and so it would be about access to finance, access to education, and entrepreneurial opportunities. Um, entrepreneurism is something that people take for granted. Um, in the kind of informal sector as well as in the formal sector, where you always have a, the, your hustle and then you have a side hustle, and you've got you know three different things that you're doing. And um, I think zeroing in on that particular conundrum and trying to find ways to support people who are um, whether you're a seamstress or you're a carpenter or you're someone who is preparing food or cleaning homes or you're a boda boda driver. You're all in this situation of precariousness um, where you don't control your, your resource space and you don't have the ability necessarily um, to grow. Um, and so small and medium-sized enterprise finance, which is not microfinance, I think is actually an incredibly powerful tool. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, microfinance is very, it's, you know, $50 a day or something. Oh, I'm going to keep going. I'm sorry. I just want to answer this question. Um, but, and then there's macro finance, which is for dams and bridges and you know, $100 million projects. But in between those is, I think, the most significant band of opportunity, which is to say, if you have a hair salon, how do you go from five employees to 10? That very unsexy, very, un very complicated ground-level work, both from the perspective of financing and the perspective of business training, is the thing that will move not just women but all people forward into a middle class and potentially more formal um, economic condition. Um, and not enough people are focusing on that band. Um, I'll call it like mezzo-finance. Um, so that, that is one tool that I think is underutilized. Um, this sort of trade and leadership question and the engagement, I mean, I, I hear a question distilled very, I'll take liberties with your question often, which is, um, how can we help? You know, what are we supposed to be doing exactly if you're in the UK or in the US or in another OECD economy um, to support the Africa we would all want? Um, and I always answer the question by saying, look, you know, um, listen. <laughs> Be, be a little more sophisticated. You know, don't bring um, what, you, what are your unconscious biases, formal, informal, whatever, to a conversation. Um, try and recognize a society that's, that's oriented differently. And when you give directions, um, in I'll use Nairobi as the example where I lived, um, you don't say that you should come to the new academic building at such and such a street. Um, you... You say, go to the gas station. If you've gone, you see the yellow building, you've gone too far. <laughs> um, if you really get lost, just ask someone. Right? And I think that's a very useful metaphor for engaging with modern Africa, um, is that it's not all going to be laid out for you perfectly, the way addresses are laid out perfectly in our Google Maps. Um, you might have to ask someone, and I think that's the most respectful way to engage. And I think for those of you in this audience that are in the diaspora, um, you are Sherpas. Um, take that seriously. It is, um, you have an advantage, um, and, and don't, don't squander that opportunity. So that's a little long, but thank you all so much, and please okay, feel free to ask me more questions. Much.